Well, maybe we can begin with just introducing yourselves to the people on your left and right for a minute. Say hello. I wanted to share a thought that came to me um, after our meditation that it's the realization that the synchronized silence, the fact that we were all observing a silence at the same time, that we were silent with others, it has a different feeling from just being silent in your room at home. And I'm noticing that the sense of community has a stabilizing effect. So if you were to check in with yourself right now, as I am too, you can just feel yourself sitting more firmly in your chair, feet on the floor, and just having a sense of yourself as um, a unity. And so I'm just throwing out the idea that uh, when we're together engaged in our spiritual practices, which I especially recommend to couples, um, it has this centering and stabilizing effect. So I'm just saying that out loud and appreciating it. As far as uh, our topic, which is the title of my book, Triggers, How We Can Stop Reacting and Start Healing. And you'll see why I'm using the word healing instead of how we can stop reacting and start responding. Um, I uh, want to just share the origin of my writing of the book. I asked myself a simple question. What is the word you hear most from clients? And it was the word triggers. So I thought to myself, um, then that would be a good topic to work on. So, um, hearing things like, uh, she triggers me, he triggers me, they trigger me. Um, and that feeling of being somehow at the mercy of what others say, do, feel, or how they 
are with you um, has kind of a victimization feeling. And uh, I want to show that we no longer have to feel that way, that actually the triggers that come to us are inroads into parts of ourselves that we really need to explore. And so the wonderful thing about our topic is that you can find healing through what triggers you. And I'll show how that works throughout the day. But um, I thought you'd like to know the origin of my idea of this particular book. Um, I'd like to begin with just reading a short paragraph in the introduction. By the way, I'll mention the page numbers in case you have the book, so I'm on page one. Somebody says something to us and we are suddenly struck with a sinking feeling in our stomach. Somebody does something and we become enraged or alarmed. Someone comes at us with a certain attitude and we go to pieces. When any of this happens, a trigger has been pulled. We find ourselves in a stimulus response experience and it happens to all of us. Also called, excuse me, pushing buttons or I have a charge on this. A trigger is any word, person, event, or experience that touches off an immediate emotional reaction. For instance, sadness, depression, anger, aggression, fear, panic, humiliation, shame. So let's use a simple example. Let's say someone who's close to you Um, you have a nice friendship. And this person says, uh, I'm moving away. That would be a triggering phrase for two reasons. One, I'm suddenly losing an important friend because if she's moving to Minnesota then I won't be seeing her much or at all. Secondly, and more deeply, we're friends, but she's telling me now that she's already made the decision. She didn't include me as she contemplated the idea. So it's a double sense of abandonment. And it's perfectly normal to have the sinking feeling when someone says, I'm moving away. And when you realize she never ran it by you, never had a discussion about it, and you feel isolated, That would be an example of a trigger that anyone would feel. So first kind of trigger is 
what everyone feels. And second would be one that's, um, shall we say, very specific to you. So trigger will always have two parts. Something stimulates a reaction and the reaction itself And some reactions are universal, such as the in the example I gave, and others might be specific, or shall we say unique to you. So let's use an example of a unique one. Let's say you notice that Whenever you displease either a male or female or someone of uh, a more open gender, that you have um, a feeling of alarm, like, oh, I'm not supposed to displease that person. Because if I do, something terrible will happen. Now, when you trace this back to your childhood, you notice or recall that, let's say, your mother hit you whenever you displeased her. So the original trauma is actually being re-stimulated by someone who represents mother. This is why triggers can help us look into what is still incomplete in our experience of childhood. So when I displeased mother, I was hit and every cell of my body now gets it that it's dangerous to displease females. And so when I do, even though I won't be hit as I was so many decades ago, I will feel the original alarm. And this is because triggers are hitting us at this amygdala level, which remembers what happened, but cancels the sense of time. So it's as if it's happening now. Whereas your prefrontal cortex tells you, no, this is not my mother. This is the woman I work with. And it's okay to displease her. Nothing terrible will happen when I do. Maybe we could even have a dialogue and find out something that's important for both of us. But the part of us that would say that is shut off when that amygdala has taken over. Secondly, 
um, as Shakespeare says in Othello, what wound did heal but by degrees? A wound heals little by little. What wounds did heal but by degrees? So the traumas that happen to us in early life are meant to be healed little by little. And they have a very specific timing. So you're only ready to work out what happens between you and mother, little by little, and when the timing is right. May not be right when you're 19, may not be right when you're 29, may be right when you're 39. But the problem with a trigger is it forces you to look at the trauma before the time was right. That's why it's so upsetting. You're being pushed into something before your body was ready to go there. So when we say that um, triggers are teachers, they are teaching us where the traumas are lodged in our bodies and they are showing us how close or how far we are from the moment at which we're ready to deal with them. Or another way of saying it is, every trigger is a trailhead into the dark and threatening forest of that inner life where all these wounds and unexpressed emotions are waiting their turn to be looked at and held safely. So we would have to want to go there if triggers are to help us. Alternative, blame that woman at work for what she said. That gets us nowhere. Or another way of saying it is, in order to have these triggers help us, we would have to let go of our big fat ego (laughs) and say, wait a minute, this is my stuff. Why am I having a big reaction? And of course, that's another quality of a trigger. It's a bigger reaction than fits the bill. Everybody basically follow? Any questions just on this part? Okay, so um, where would we go to figure out where the particular trigger came from? Why is this so important? 
And my suggestion is that we look in three places. And it spells the word see. In other words, we try to see what's really going on, what is the origin of our trigger. I'll explain each of these. It could be that your shadow side is activated. You're asking the question, is this my shadow? Or it could be your ego has been bruised and is reacting. Or it could be what we were just talking about, your early life that is being presented once again in what's going on in the present. Shadow refers to, if this is a word coined by Carl Jung, and it refers to what might be called, what some people would call the dark side of ourselves, and every one of us has it. Um, in In early life, we began to manifest certain qualities in our personality, and we noticed that these qualities were unsafe to present to our family or peers. For instance, selfishness. So we repressed that part of ourselves and we try to cover it up and gradually we believed that we weren't that way. So on the one hand we will cover up the negative parts of ourselves These are the socially unacceptable parts. It's dangerous to be selfish because people won't like you. And since we're social beings and it's so important to be in community, uh, we would not want to believe that about ourselves. We also cover up some positive parts of us, certain gifts. So let's say you're artistic or imaginative, but you're in a family that doesn't like that or acknowledge that, thinks that's a waste of time, useless. All that matters is what's practical. Then you might also push down, submerge some of your talents and gifts. But of course, the psyche is oriented toward expressing itself. So, these negative, unacceptable qualities don't just stay within. They start to shall we say, pop out. And the way they pop out is, first of all, in dreams, 
and in projections. In other words, we will strongly dislike in other people and we will be triggered by the unacceptable qualities in them that are actually our own. How can you tell that that's true? The only ones you dislike are the ones that you can't imagine are true of you. And on the other side, you will dream of yourself as a hero or somebody who has many talents or gifts. And by projection, to project is to see in someone else a quality that you are unwilling to see in yourself. So you will strongly admire in other people what's actually true of you. And so you will be positively triggered. We're talking today mostly about negative triggers, but there are positive ones too, like suddenly falling in love or suddenly having an epiphany. But when you notice that you're drawn to someone who has a certain quality and you're drawn to all people with this quality and it's a strong triggering response that alerts you to the fact that it's in you too. So I admire what I have hidden and I dislike what I have hidden, but both of them are pointing me to parts of myself. Let's take this poem by Emily Dickinson. Helps, helps explain it. Uh, I think all the words in it are understandable. One need not be a chamber to be haunted. One need not be a house. The brain has corridors surpassing material place. Far safer of a midnight meeting, external ghosts than the interior confronting that cooler host. Far safer through an abbey gallop, the stones a chase, than unarmed one self-encounter in a lonesome place. Ourself behind ourself, concealed, should startle most. Assassin hid in our apartment, Bihara's least. The body borrows a revolver and bolts the door or looking a superior specter or more. So I'm imagining that what might endanger me is coming from the outside when all the while it's coming from within. That poem was written in Civil War times. So this is a, something that the psyche has known over the centuries. 
you wouldn't have such a triggering response of dislike or hate unless there was something in you that resembled what you were hating. You wouldn't have such a big response of adoration or admiration of others unless somewhere inside you were the same wonderful gifts. Both are encouraging. This, the positive one is encouraging because you find out some wonderful things about yourself, but even the negative side is encouraging because within every one of these dislikable qualities, there's a golden kernel of value. So for instance, let's say you strongly dislike people and you get really triggered by people who try to control you. And this isn't because your parents try to control you. This is just your pet peeve. And you can't stand controlling people. And of course, you would never imagine that you yourself might be somewhat manipulative. But actually, if you look at it, and if you did acknowledge that I'm secretly manipulative a lot of the time, if you look at the way you brought up your children, I certainly know this about my own son and have acknowledged it to him and apologized. I said, over the years, Josh, I know I have done many things to try to manipulate you. Now I realize that wasn't the right way to go. He said, it doesn't matter. I noticed it and I paid no attention. (laughs) So, but you could say to yourself, well, wait a minute. Um, Can I acknowledge that there's a positive side to every negative characteristic that we might have? And the positive side of controlling is, of course, ability to lead, ability to follow up, organizational qualities, uh, ability to see the whole picture and try to organize things so that the uh, picture comes through in a way that's useful. See all those qualities that are in control? What makes controlling negative is just are forcing our view on someone else. But all the rest of what's um, included in the quality of controlling is probably uh, something useful. Does this make sense to everybody? Anyway, um, so this is the first possible place to look when you're triggered. Because we're going to be looking at three places to look to see where this trigger came from. Uh, One last uh, quote by Jung on this issue of projection. So these two, the strong dislike and the strong admiration are projection. And projection comes from two Latin words which mean to throw forward. So you take something in you and you throw it forward onto the other. 
and Jung's um, very clear statement about this is, projection makes the whole world a replica of our own hidden life. Projection makes the whole world a replica, a mirror image of of something in us that we have hidden from ourselves. So now we're seeing the connection between a trigger and what we hide from ourselves. Questions about the shadow side? And obviously, in relationships, the shadow will certainly appear. Uh, You notice yourself saying things you never thought you would say. And you realize, oh, this, uh, shall we say, negative side is coming out. It's been triggered by what's ever happening in the relationship. Uh, Any questions? Okay, I'll always check in with you on questions, but if you have any, just raise your hand. So let's look at the second one, which is ego. And I gave you a handout about this. And basically, ego is the Latin word for I. And when I becomes so central that it uh, reaches out everywhere and uh, everything in your life is focused on your own sense of importance, that's called a big ego. And this ego, of course, is easily bruised when others do not acknowledge the greatness that you know is in you. And I should get my way and I should be in full control. Uh, I've described it this way, using the word fear, F-E-A-R, writing it vertically, Ego is fear of closeness and cooperation, entitlement to special treatment, arrogance, because you think you're better than other people, and requiring that everyone be at your service. So if something happens that shows you're not being honored for what you're entitled to, that uh, someone has... um, shown that the emperor has no clothes 
So your arrogance is being hit in directly in the bullseye. Or you're not receiving the honor and service that you think you should get, then that would be another example of where the trigger is. So the trigger is sometimes hitting you at the shadow level, showing me myself. It could be hitting me at the ego level, showing me I'm not all that I'm crocked up to be. I'm not, uh, I'm not being acknowledged as um, the important person that I am. And third is what we talked about before, early life. Something is happening that happened to me in the past. So it's the uh, title of one of my other books, Past in the Present. This person is treating me the way one of my parents did. This person is bringing up the same feeling that I had with one or both of my parents. So now what's happening is you are looking directly into what's still unresolved from early life. While not being in a position to deal with it. So if this were happening in the therapist's office, you could instantly go to, oh, let's look at what's unresolved between me and mom or me and dad. But when you're triggered into this reaction of, shame, anger, fear, so forth, and you don't have anywhere to take it, to process it and resolve it, then um, it hurts a lot. And it seems to render you, specifically on this one, more so than the other two, shadow and ego, you have a feeling of... um, being powerless. That's your clue that it has something to do with childhood because that's when you were powerless and uh, you're triggered into the powerless feeling without connecting it to your early life. But thanks to our work here today, you will be so conscious of triggers that instead of just having a trigger happen, you will ask, now ask yourself, wait a minute, is this my shadow, my ego, or my early life, or all three, or two out of three? This is how the trigger becomes the trailhead into our work on ourselves and our healing. So we're going for something bigger than just, 
oh, don't react, respond. We're going for something much bigger than that, which is how can this trigger show me where I still need healing and how can I go there? And of course, the fast track is to notice how your mind wants to go to blame of the other. And as soon as you switch from blame to personal work, you have turned a trigger into a teacher. And when I say teacher, I mean not only psychological, but spiritual too. We'll see that as we go along. Okay, we have a question up here. Person with the microphone. Hold it one sec, we're getting the microphone. Right here. Yes, yeah, some questions might come up in your mind and let's see if we can say more about the whole thing through the questions. Does everybody basically get the idea so far? Yeah. There you go. It's not a question. It's, oh. it's, it's not a question. It's a comment. Oh, good. Okay. Um, that when you talk about early life and mom and dad... Yeah. I have also found, especially from my own personal experience, an older sibling. Okay. Brother or sister. Could be just as yeah. powerful or even more so. <laughs> yes. Could be any family member. It's as if everything that ever happens with everyone that was ever with us is meant to be metabolized psychologically so that it can come to rest and no longer be an inner demon that keeps clawing at us and making it seem like we're powerless to do anything about it. Oh, okay. Thank you. Um, I had a question about societal trauma around race and ability and other, um, you know, marginalization and where that fits in or whether you'd put a different category for that. Uh, Thank you. I didn't, no, could you repeat it? I didn't quite get. Okay, so I'm curious about um, trauma that, is not from childhood, but from society around oh, okay. race and ability and other marginalization. Yes. Thank you. Trauma is the Greek word for wound. And so the experience of a wound can come from any quarter. And it isn't all connected to childhood. It could be recent, could be like a recent experience, could be an accident that occurred and you still haven't gotten over it. You feel re-traumatized, even whenever the memory comes up. Memory coming up and triggering a reaction would be an example of an internal trigger. So sometimes we trigger ourselves. It's not only other people who trigger us. And, um, yeah, I'm glad you're pointing that out. Yeah. Hi. Yes. Uh, you know, I liked what you said about triggers uh, being uh, responses that are beyond fitting the bill. 
and, uh, and uh, you know, I guess too strong. And, um, you know, sometimes I go to a place where uh, I think I'm just, I've been hurt and I'm just asserting a healthy boundary. And all I'm doing is asserting some healthy boundary and I'm saying, hey, that's not okay, what you did. Uh, but then I also feel like I'm triggered. So I don't know, how do I know, and, and, and it's probably difficult, but any guideposts to how I know when I'm going beyond asserting a healthy boundary and into a place where I'm having a reaction that is too strong. I don't know if that question It's when, um, and that's a good question. It's when you cross over from the ouch and the statement of boundaries into blame and guilt-tripping and aggression. And we all know when we cross that particular boundary. Does that help? Yes. Okay, and right here. Um, I found the shadow explanation really fascinating. And a question I have is I've found myself liking and disliking sort of the opposite sides of the same issue. So, for example, um, people that are very thoughtful and intelligent in their analysis of a problem, I highly admire. But people who are not, I highly dislike. So how does that work where it's like both of those kind of opposite sides of the same thing? Um. It's probably more about judgment. So you want to look into, you know, how I have a certain uh, criterion for what people are supposed to be like. And when they're not that way, I um, look down on them. So you want to ask yourself if any of that is happening. And it happens to all of us. And... um, the practice that I've been using, uh, I got from Buddhism, of course, and it is, whenever you notice yourself judging, see if you can switch over to compassion. How can I feel compassion for those who are like this? Now you're looking at the quality that you don't like in a way that holds it rather than creates a distance. And remember that it might be a disowned part of yourself. Disowned part of yourself is the shadow. The shadow side that we all have. And little by little, we want to um, um, shall we say, look at each of these disowned qualities and ask ourselves, um, how can I work on this so that what was so that I can now own more of what I'm really like?" Imagine wanting that. I want to know just how dark I get 
and my purposes and motivations. And I don't mean dark complexion. I mean uh, negative ways of acting or being. Uh, Yeah. Uh, When I think of triggers, I think of PTSD. Um, And I was wondering if the formation of a disorder or a syndrome around that trauma changes this formula at all. I'm sure it fits into the past life part of it, but it's not always a direct... It's not always so clear this person is being this way. I know this from my childhood. It could be something abstract or it could be something symbolic like an item that was present. And I'm wondering how that fits into this formula. Um, You're pointing out that uh, there are many more places to look for where the trigger came from. I'm just giving the three main ones. And you're right. It could be PTSD. I have a little section in here about that. That uh, that something happened, and it's now uh, re-traumatizing you because it's coming back up. And uh, here's your chance to work on it a little more. See, thinking this new way, here's my chance to work on myself a little more is so different from I can't stand the way this person acts and this person is so wrong for being like this. That does not get us into the forest of ourselves that waits for exploration. Wanting to go into who I really am is one of the most courageous of all human endeavors. And blame is the way we say no to such a journey. Blame, by the way, comes from the same word that from which we get blaspheme it's to turn against that which is sacred what is sacred the inner life of each person so fragile so unknown Uh, yeah hi thank you Um, I'm trying to discern Uh, the qualitative differences of the three types of triggers. And the only reason I'm asking about that is that it also appears to me, at least in my own experience, that they may be somehow process-related. I know personally I've created a very strong ego that gets sensitive, and I created that ego in response to childhood trauma, many of them. As a part of creating that ego, I set up projection dynamics, and then I have triggers. I get triggered. And so what I'm thinking, now perhaps it's just idiosyncratic for most of us individual, perhaps I should just look at early life as the source of the triggers because the ego, the projection dynamics stemmed out of them. Is that an alternative way of sort of assessing the three trigger, you know, the setup that you provided? Yes. Yes, whatever works for you. Whatever you um, notice 
is helping you know yourself better and work through what is still so unresolved. That's how triggers help us. We're not allowing triggers just to um, take aim at us and harm us. We're saying, wait a minute, I can turn this into a learning experience. Okay? Yeah. I live with my mother-in-law. And... (laughs) No, but to be clear, she is a... Honestly, she is a woman in so much pain much of the time that it is really apparent to me that she is not the problem. I am feeling terrible rage. And although initially I thought it was directed at her, uh, it is not. It is because I am not responding to her as the adult that I worked very hard to become. Mm. And my own mother, having now passed away, this woman is nothing like my mother. But I am responding with silence, with the same silence that I responded to my mother with. Um, And I'm so angry at myself. I am capable of saying, Karen, I see that you are hurting, but we're not going to take that out on me today. Let's talk about what's going on. I'm a high school teacher. I do it all day, every day. And yet, she kind of comes in with these side comments, which on I feel like with anyone else, I would be fine. What's wrong with me? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not that there's something wrong with you. It's just the way triggers work. And all that matters is you're noticing it and you're seeing, asking yourself, how do I work on this? And sometimes it takes therapy to help us with that. But um, you're, it sounds like you are uh, wonderfully on track with I want to be an adult. And that's the challenge. I just hope any day now it will happen. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Well, we have some other questions, but first we're going to take our 10-minute break, and then we'll come back and pick up more questions.
We're ready to start. And we had some leftover questions. And if you do have more on uh, post-traumatic stress, we'll get to that this afternoon. But first, let's go to the other uh, questions we had left over. Yeah. I had a question. It is kind of related to PTSD. Do you want me to wait and ask you later when you're in that no. section? No, it's or okay. Just, go okay. ahead. So, hi, I'm Lawrence. I local, live in San Rafael. And uh, um, uh, what I want to say is uh, probably other people can relate, I would think, but I, I grew up with a father that was very, um, had a very hot button for respect. He felt disrespected in many, many ways, like almost on a, every few days he was fighting with my wife, yelling and screaming. I, I mean, I really, I can relate to the other guy in the back of the room that was talking last a little bit. I can relate to what he was saying. It's very similar for me. And I don't know how to shed 48 years of that respect being kind of put upon me, if you know what I mean, because I, I, I was subjected to it for, for so long. I even lived with them through part of my college. And now they're passed away. And I thought, oh, now they're passed away and my dad's gone. You know, I'll, I'll be fine. And in fact, it, it seemed to get worse. Like, my reactions got worse. And I don't know how to take those 40-plus years of respect that I now feel I'm reacting to out of being disrespected in different ways. And I don't know. I'll use the tools that you're showing us today, but I don't yet know how to shed that that has been in me for like so long and it has affected my life um, in, a, in, a, in a pretty dramatic way. I mean, it's amazing I'm still married, actually. So some people lose their spouses over drinking, but it can also be lost over being re overly reactive. And it's a very, for me, it's a very serious thing and I'm taking this very seriously. I'm going to do more work, more workshops, and find other ways to help me, even maybe with you personally, we'll see. I don't well, know. I admire, we'll thank you. I admire your um, dedication to finding a way through, and uh, it's it's some combination of noticing more and more how what I'm reacting to is not my original parents anymore, but to the cameo inside of what they looked like to me, which is the only thing that matters when it comes to triggers, and uh, to see how I'm still holding them in a way that is toxic to my own mental health. And somehow I have to um, kind of uh, see through that and not go to um, any ill will toward them or hate of them or even, uh, we could even let go of, of blaming, although we're always acknowledging that they were accountable for how they were. But, um, yeah. 
was blame. And, and I, I definitely, um, in the last four years that he was in nursing home, he would say things to my face in front of the nurses of how awful a son I was or, you know, just awful, awful things. And I, I did nothing but take care of the guy and lost a couple of jobs over it. Like, every day I was on call. And, and I didn't blame him. I, I tried to dig deep in my heart to forgive him up until the day he died. And he even said my birth was accidental. He, he said horrible, horrible things to me that I could have easily walked away in the first few days of his nursing homes and said, I'm not responsible for you anymore. You know, kiss off. And I didn't. So well, I'm trying to do my work, but I have a lot more to, to do. And I yeah. need more help. Okay. Well, thank you for being so vulnerable and how you're expressing it. Hi. Yeah, we don't want to walk away, but we also no longer want to be in the line of fire. If you're going to be talking like that now, I'm going to have to leave, but I will see you next week. We're starting to say things like that, and that's taking care of ourselves. Or you can use my seven-word solution. Oh, my God, look at the time. <laughs> There's some... Yeah. Hi. Um, Hi. I was uh, very struck by this concept of powerless and that feeling of powerlessness. Yeah. Um, and I just wanted to build off of something the gentleman said over there about, um, you know, I thought, okay, boundaries are a good thing to have. And for me to learn those after, um, you know, a childhood with a very domineering, narcissistic parent, it, you know, going from feeling porous to having boundaries is kind of a powerful feeling. Um, and I was, I was struck by the blame, guilt-tripping, aggression. Like, that's when you said it flips into something else. And I'm having a little bit of uh, trouble um, discerning between those things. And the idea of, you know, with blame, I'm, I really want to identify it and call it what it is as it's happening. <laughs> is that yeah. considered blame? Um, if I'm feeling offended and saying, hey, this, you think, this is wrong, is that considered guilt tripping or aggression if I voice my my dislike of of, of something coming toward me? Um, I, I pretty much the way yeah you would say something like the way you're putting it right now I really don't like and I'm taking care of myself by not letting people talk to me that way. So we're going to have to change the style of the conversation, or I'm going to have to go. <clears throat> something like that. Does that make sense? I mean, would you feel comfortable saying something like that? Um, y yes, I think it's relearning um, and slowing down. It is relearning. Yeah, because... And retraining right. the other, as you know, you can no longer get away with that. Because I, I tend to freeze. So it's very common. <laughs> it's hard to articulate yeah. in, in the moment. Well, that's because 
the prefrontal cortex where the intelligent words are is offline when you're being hit from behind in our most primitive, vulnerable place. I want to say one more thing about, you know, what you just brought up regarding the powerlessness. Um, Last year was my 50th anniversary as a therapist, and I asked myself the question. Uh, I wasn't trying to... (laughs) uh, No, I asked myself the question. What is the most common problem that you encountered over this half a century? The answer came to me instantly. Staying too long in what doesn't work. And what I want to bring up is the powerlessness does not only come from childhood. We disempower ourselves daily when we keep putting up with abuse in any form. So the powerless part is also alerting us to take a look at, discern, as you said, uh, am I staying in something that... the shelf life of which is over. Follow what I mean? Yes. Good. Okay. But yeah, right behind. Yeah. Hi. You actually sort of led into part of exactly my question. So I'm struggling right now with a situation that I perceive is related to just fundamental injustice in the world. So I did a giant project at work and the CEO proceeded to thank two men who had done less work on the project. And I'm sick about it. And so I'm, I'm trying to, you know, think about it through this lens, but I have this, I, I believe at my core that part of this is because I am a woman. Mm. And my choice to go to a different employer, my experience may not be different. This is st- statistically, you know, how certain people are treated in the world. Mm-hmm. Statistically, you're going to get the same results. So I just wanted to ask for any thoughts on when, when part of the trigger is that it's not yes. fair. Yes, I see what you're saying. and I'm, uh, I do want to respond, and I do understand. So when it's in injustice, something unfair, as in the example you're giving, of, you know, gender discrimination, let's say, sex discrimination, and you are triggered by it, you're angry, frustrated. This is not in the category of the SEE. This is not about shadow, ego, early life. This is... A, a direct natural reaction to something that is um, unacceptable. And we go from our triggered reaction to our ouch combined with self-advocacy 
and somehow um, joining with uh, groups that are specifically aimed at helping us with unfairness at the job or wherever it may be. So we have our three, our three ways of responding. The personal ouch, speaking up uh, about your legitimate anger. Dictionary definition of anger. Displeasure at injustice. So triggered into anger, totally normal. And I'm saying ouch, that's the anger. I'm self-advocating in whatever way I can. And I'm joining with others, either where I work or in community, that have as their purpose to help you, like a support group. So those are the three ways of working. And I'm glad you brought this up because you're helping us see that some triggers are not about you. They're about the unfairness that's being foisted on you. Everybody follow? There was another question. Yeah. Hi. Where are you? Back here. Oh, okay. Yep. So this is in regards to a situation with yeah, with infidelity. And, uh, you know, I guess the trigger in this case is that the trigger isn't necessarily just another person, but it's kind of coming up all over the place where, you know, movies, music, whatever, the trigger is kind of popping up in, in a lot of different, pl- different ways. Um, and so I guess the, tr- the difficulty is in identifying the inner part when it feels like it, it was, you know, the unfaithfulness was done to me. And, you know, kind of, do you have any tips of, you know, on, on getting rid of that or letting go of that anger? You know, it's, it's something that's, that's, that's really difficult. Uh, and it feels like it's, you know, unfair. We're going to talk in detail this afternoon about uh, anger and fear and sadness, the three feelings, the three main feelings. And shame is the fourth one. We're, we're gonna, we're, we'll go to that this afternoon. But um, basically, um, the trust has been broken. And that is immensely destabilizing. By the way, what I've noticed in myself, working with my own triggers, is that the more you're destabilized, the more likely is it one of the three. Shadow, ego, early life. Because, again, destabilizing is another form of um, losing your power. So I'll come back to what you brought up. Uh, Okay, right here. Thank you for this conversation and the people who've shared. Yes, and that's a good word for our day. It's supposed to be an ongoing conversation. So, Um, I'm 64. 
And I've just been willing to take on a trigger and feelings that I've had. I got pregnant when I was 16, 17. And my son and I have had this dance. And my thing was to have him grow up, get on, and get on with his life. Except he's 46 and he's yearning. He's that little boy yearning from something for me. And how much I can still feel like I don't want to give it. I raised you. I did it. And, and over the last month or so, I've really come to realize it wasn't my son. It was my work to do. I hadn't been willing to take on the work about that. I just I had to go back and look at what that felt like at 17 and what I didn't have and how empty and whole what I really didn't have to take to parenting. But what I did with it was he was the problem. And I kept thinking, you know, he's independent. He's gone on about his life. He's not coming back to me. But when he would come, I would get pissed. I'm like, what do you want? Didn't I give it all to you? And so I just said to my therapist, I said, you know, I haven't been willing to do the work. I thought it was his in some sense. And his work was like, okay, you grew up. Go, go, go. Don't come back because I don't have nothing for you. And so, and that's not true because I've done a lot of adult child work. And I wouldn't be able to get to this place to say, I finally got it. It was mine. I wrote this list of all the ways I acted toward him. And this shortness and this thing and... I have a great deal of shame about that. But I also have a great deal of compassion about that for me and for him. And listening today and listening, I I was just thinking I couldn't be in a better place. Triggers. And um, thinking about the ego. And I let go of the story a long time ago where I would say, there's nothing like a a single black mom working two jobs Doing every, what can you say to a mother who's working two jobs, taking care of you, having you in a private school, dealing with, you can't say anything to that parent because they've really worked hard. And he's at a point where his stuff is up and it just comes out. And it's not easy, except um, I'm just going to say this and close out. It isn't... um, I wrote this note today. The thing that I hope is that indeed that he gets to greet the adult parent, the adult woman in me. I know that it's been this 17-year-old girl stuck in the past, raging. I, I just really got this was about my past. It wasn't about him needing to grow up, get out and get gone. That was the mantra of our life. But that he get to meet that. And I've been teaching for 11 years, and I've been doing the same dance in my classroom. And it's so, right now, they're very parallel, and your topic today is very well received. And I really feel like I'm going to leave here with better tools. And it is something to say, yes, yes, I am ready. Thank you. Thank you. It's hard for us to think of our own mothers talking like that about us. (laughs) 
But I do want to add, I, I totally get what you're saying, like, you know, that it's your business, psychological business, of course. But um, I just want to throw this in. Uh, I have certainly noticed that the need for motherly or fatherly moments never goes away. And you don't go necessarily to your own parents for those moments, but you are on the lookout for the people around you who come across in those nurturing, protecting, caring, holding ways and you gravitate toward them and you, uh, uh, and you open yourself to uh, how they are holding you and that that's perfect and that it's perfectly okay to have that happening. That's not a sign of not growing up. So I am growing up and all through life I will still have the need for a fatherly or motherly moment here or there. If I want it every minute, then I've got problems. (laughs) But occasionally, no problem. Uh, okay, and the person way in the back also. Thank you for your work and your books. Thank you, Nicole. <laughs> um, I was thinking about your comment about triggers push you before the body is ready to go there. And I was feeling like on a spiritual level, something that feels kind of reassuring. And I was wondering if this is possible that the universe is presenting these situations um, as a way of saying you are ready to look at this or we want to prepare you a bit more. And um, since I have the mic, I'll also say I need a ride back to San Francisco. So if you are (laughs) driving, just let me know what the break thinks. Thank you, Nicole. Um, Yes, it's a synchronizing. That's the essence of synchronicity. Meaningful coincidence between the events occurring, and what you're ready to look at. So when I'm ready to do this piece of my work, just the people and events seem to come along that point me to it. And I'm being very careful not to be superstitious or new age, but... um, I have seen this happen so often, it's just hard to deny that there are meaningful coincidences in which you uh, become aware that more is happening in favor of your growth than just yourself. Seems like you're being supported in the journey um, by many other resources. So Dorothy in Oz 
is at first alone, but very soon she meets just the friends who will help her complete her journey. Seems like uh, they, they arrive just at the time when they're needed. If we could trust that, that would be the equivalent of um, trusting a friendly universe. It's not friendly in the sense that if we fall off a cliff, we won't land dead at the bottom. But it is friendly in the sense that um, the events and people... uh, seem to fold into our personal work. And parents are, of course, at the top of the list, but in very complex ways. By the way, I was just thinking of another quotation from Jung. Um, The journey with father and mother up and down many ladders is the gateway into the spiritual world. Isn't that beautiful? That, in other words, that you, you have some kind of work to do with your parents and it'll be like an ascent and a descent, but you're going to have to do that first before you can have a healthy, mature spirituality. So it's a psychological work and that readies us for a spiritual entry into practices that help us grow in the spiritual way. And obviously there could be exceptions, but Um, I just like his way of putting it. Somebody else? uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah, thank you. This has been really uh, insightful, especially for me today. And um, I guess I was hoping we could revisit injustice a little bit. If not right now, then at some point today. So the work that I'm involved in right now is um, working with people who are very traumatized, both in their past and in their present lives. I work with people who are experiencing homelessness. And um, I hear a lot of stories that are very hard to sit with sometimes, and I listen as mindfully as I can. Um, And then I don't feel always triggered in that moment, but I'll sometimes find myself going home and feeling very activated. And I've been working with that, like reading a lot of books about trauma and triggers and doing things to kind of move it through the body because I feel like it's getting stuck sometimes. Um, And definitely liked this pathway that you kind of explained of feeling triggered and then getting more involved. Like I've definitely been more active going to City Hall and getting more involved with advocacy-type work Mm -hmm. because of feeling that sadness moving to anger, feeling the anger motivating me towards action and acting, but also feeling like 
so many of us who are doing this work right now are, are I just wanted to know if you have other tools. <laughs> like what do you do when that still almost doesn't feel like enough? And not enough, but... Um, uh, what helps me is to keep coming back to that famous uh, prayer of Reinhold Niebuhr, written in 1943, now used by 12-step programs. I will look for the serenity to accept what I can't change, but I will try to build the courage to change what I can, and I will open myself to having the wisdom to see the difference. I'm going to do all I can with this injustice issue. I'm going to... Um, I'm going to draft in all the helpers I can and I'm going to do whatever I can to make the changes that let let freedom ring and let justice occur. And when I get to the part that doesn't want to move, that's where I'm going to my acceptance, my unconditional yes to the given that I can't always get everything to come out right for myself or others. And I'm continually asking Holy Spirit, Buddha, whoever, whatever works for you as a, as a spiritual advocacy, um, help me see the difference. I, can I say one more thing real quick? Yeah. I guess part of the other thing that I'm struggling with trying to, I, I love that quote and I, I agree. Like I know, I, I know I'm not going to, I'm not going to save people. I'm not going to help. I'm not helping people. I try to serve. Um, I like that Rachel Naomi Remen article, helping versus fixing versus serving. And, and so I do think that it's important that I don't try to pretend that I'm going to solve this problem. Mm-hmm. Definitely not on my own. But I guess what I'm sitting with sometimes and struggling to understand if there's a different way is that I really do see this as a mental health crisis for our whole community. You know, I grew up in the Bay Area. This isn't the way it used to be in this capacity. So when I walk around in, say, San Francisco or the East Bay, and there is this intense suffering happening every day in front of us. I see this as a mental health crisis for the whole community here, where it's like, how can you walk past that and not feel something within yourself? Mm. And so I guess what I am curious is if you have any insight into how to inspire people to want to <laughs> get involved, I guess, or, or just what insight you have about that just because I I don't see a way out of this situation right now and it feels very hard okay (laughs) so I guess that's more what I'm trying to I will I do have a response um and by the way the this woman right here had a question also so we're um with with the question that you're asking we ask ourselves what is my calling in this like am I here have I been given the gifts that would make me a community organizer 
or is my gift to join with those who already have these wonderful skills and support them? And it goes all the way down the spectrum to, uh, I guess, what I can do is only respond to what's immediate for me. So um, we don't want to put on ourselves the archetype of the rescuer of humanity. But at the same time, we're open to whatever role we might play in the overall betterment of the world. And of course, that is our, our um, bodhi, not only our bodhisattva vow, but uh, the meaning of bodhicitta. That I am never, um, I am never just looking for enlightenment for myself. I'm always wanting to share it with others, and I'm continually opening myself to see how that could happen, rather than blaming myself that I'm not doing it enough. So I would put it that way. So um, I love the clarity that we're sort of breaking things down. And I find that I get really confused in life because they don't fall into nice columns. Um, so, um, so for me, what I'm working with is like um, blame, anger, and triggers. So when are triggers a sign that I've stayed too long? Like I've said, ouch, I've done advocacy, and now I'm in a place of feeling angry and blaming and aggression, and what is mine? I guess it's answering my own question as I'm saying it, but what is mine and what is theirs? Like, they're blaming me. You know, it gets really muddled, and I know that's also part of my early childhood, because that's the type of parenting I grew up with, and... When it gets to be that toxic, you know that uh, you've done all you can do, and time has come to step away from whatever the issue is and let others step in who still have us a, a lively, cheerful view and have more hope about how it can work. When we get to that point of despair and desperation, then we're no longer... Um, being of much help. So we have to be kind to ourselves and kind of step back. Maybe it's just briefly, but uh, we're not really going to contribute when we've gotten to that point of um, having it feel kind of uh, poisonous to ourselves. Yeah. I read, thank you. I read the book, loved it, especially the chapter on fear. And I was wondering if you could comment a little bit more on the C paradigm. Um, in terms of early childhood, I personally relate to that. Got it. In terms of ego, I can intellectually understand that. But in terms of the shadow, I'm, so I can just see it in others and understand what's going on. I, if you can expand on that with a, like maybe a hypothetical or an example from a movie or art or something, I'm not sensing or really understanding how trauma based on the shadow how that might manifest itself manifest itself manifest it um, how it manifests in other words you are um, C 
seeing a portrayal of your disavowed self in what someone else is doing. So here's someone getting away with something that you couldn't get away with. Maybe that's a simpler way to put it. And so you're triggered, but if you really were to be honest with yourself, you would see what really bothers me is he gets away with it. Does that help at all? And and perhaps I'm I'm envious Mm. of that person getting away with it, and that would trigger a reaction, a traumatic reaction. Yes. Okay. Envy goes with when I said, you know, you strongly admire, you also strongly envy someone who um, has something that you yourself uh, can't imagine is in yourself. <clears throat> By the way, I thought I was thinking of another poem by Emily Dickinson in which he goes to the question of why would we hide from ourselves these wonderful gifts and spend our time admiring these great heroes rather than recognizing that we have heroism in ourselves. And she does have an answer. We never know how high we are till we are asked to rise. And then, if we be true to plan, our stature touch the skies. The heroism we recite would be a common thing Did not ourselves the cubits warp for fear to be a king? In other words, the last two lines give you the, are the punchline. Did not ourselves the cubits warp if only we didn't warp our bigness contract ourselves to be smaller than the big heroes, if only we didn't do that to ourselves, and the reason we're doing it is for fear to be a king, for fear of our own power. So this is the other side of the question of powerlessness. You feel powerless, especially when the trigger has something to do with childhood, but it could refer to all three. But there's also the part of us to look at that is afraid of our own power. And so we don't step up to the plate because uh, we're just too scared to do so. She doesn't say why we're scared, but she at least identifies that the reason we put ourselves down, warp the cubits of our size is because we're afraid to be as big as we are as humans. So we stunt our growth and stunt our size because if we had all the powers that we really do have, uh, we'd be taking on a big responsibility to use them. So it's so much easier to be small.
another poem, she says, I was the smallest in the house. I took the smallest room. So some of us were trained to do that. You can't be big here. You can't be your full self. You can only be a little self. I was recently reading a a poem by Marge Piercy. Um, And I think that I don't remember the name and I don't know it by heart, but I can tell you the point of it. It I think the name of it is Bonsai. Bonsai. And what she says is, you know, that we women have been bonsized down rather than becoming the tall oaks that we were meant to be. And I thought to myself, well, that could apply to any, all of us, but more so to women because of our unfair society. That you have to ask yourself, is this the full me or is this the bonsai version of it? And uh, I teach a, cl- teach a class on, on uh, reading and writing poetry and I had the people write a poem who came along with the bonsai shears? Who kept cutting us down so we would be uh, the size they wanted us to be? And of course, we take over and we're the ones with the shears now. Uh, do you have the mic? Yeah. That's a very good way to talk about taming a horse as a parent, you know, taking to take the wildness out. I want to speak to the question of you uh, you stay too long and what doesn't work. Yeah. I, I have a daughter, and I'm not going to stay too long. I mean, I am going to stay. I'm not going to walk away. But I find it's exactly what you're saying, that she's getting away with things that I never got away with. And it's, it's infuriating to see her be so defiant when I was compliant. And so I know exactly where this is coming from, but in the moment, uh, I'm, not, I'm not processing it. So I'd like some, some thought about that. Well, you mean as a, an envy? Perhaps, or just, you know, she's not, she's not uh, been trimmed or tamed in the way I was, how dare she? (laughs) I I don't see what the problem is. (laughs) You want to just let it be okay that she has her own story and her own. Well, we're talking about not going to school. Getting up late, not going to school. Oh, okay. So there you're going to set limits because that's what parents do. So there you don't have a choice. That would be how we would work with this, like with children. You know, in some areas you have a choice and in other areas you don't. This one you don't. So this is... Uh, right here. Sorry, I have the... So we'll make this the last question, but then we'll pick, up, pick it up again after lunch. And I'm using the questions to bring in more of the topic that I wanted to talk about. So the questions are not distractions. They're 
bringing me into important corners of the entire room of the topic of triggers that I might not have gone into if I didn't have your questions. Yeah, so I had a question. So last, no, no, we, this right here. No, is this okay. person right here. So, um, you know, trigger is a word that is very quick. We speak of hair trigger. Yeah. Uh, it seems that this process of consciousness requires um, a prerequisite of some type of practice so that we can get ahead of the trigger uh, rather than simply oh, yes. analyzing the trigger. So, yes. um, yeah, how do you have some practices? Or uh, Oh, yeah, I'm going to start with that when we come back. And the first one is um, noticing... And it took me many years to get get to this, um, unfortunately. Um, just to notice the specific triggers that you have and to work with them, it made an enormous difference in how I was triggered once I knew ahead of time where the problem might come up. So when you can say to yourself, this is the kind of jo- uh, job that's bringing up these triggers which, are, uh, which I'm vulnerable to, I've got to be on the lookout for how I can work with them so that I'm not a big pain in the neck to everybody in here. And I'm somehow doing my own work. Um, so I will, I will respond to that. And uh, I have other ways, especially including uh, Buddhist practices that help us with our um, project of turning triggers from reactions and blame to responses and healing. That is our overall purpose, and we will certainly get there. So we're going to come back here at, you can come back at 1.30 if you want me to sign books, or you can come at a quarter of two, which is when we start our program again. So have a great lunch. Welcome back, everyone. So let's just go to the final questions that were left over, and then I'll continue. Uh, Is the person with the microphone around?
Yeah. I, I just wondered if you would expand a little bit on why we don't want our power. Well, besides the fact of it would then put a lot of responsibility on us, we must have also gotten the message that the only way to be loved is to be little. Just the parts that others found acceptable. on? Oh, maybe it's on now. I had a question when you were talking about what you learned after 50 years was that, um, I can't remember how you said it, people... The biggest problem that I encountered. That's right. People stay too long. In others and in myself. Okay. People stay too... Staying too too long and what doesn't work. Okay. Yeah. So... Barring none. All the others put together don't even equal it. So, if it's that... A common a problem. Um, my question is, how how do we know when it's time to leave and how do we know when it's time to continue to work on something? Well, that's going to be the topic of my next book. So. <laughs> I don't know myself yet, but I'll figure it out. I mean, the main thing to remember on that topic is we were taught to endure pain more than we were taught to deserve happiness. Like, you're, you're, you, you imagine <clears throat> that your life is being successful because you are dealing with the painful situations that you're in. And somehow you're navigating your way through. And you think, oh, well, that's success at being a human. But um, that um, is still a poor man's version of what true humanity would be about. From the Buddhist perspective, it's about um, finding happiness by letting go of such conditioning. So that would be the freedom. The freedom would be you're no longer living in accord with the conditioning that you inherited and you're designing a life that accurately reflects your own deepest needs and wishes. Then you start to recognize yourself in what you are and do. Instead of, oh, I'm living in accord with what the family said, the church said, the society said, or the peers said.
There was somebody else. Yeah. So kind of a similar question to that. Um, I understand that we often stay in bad situations longer than we should. But what what do you say or do or think about when maybe we're overcorrecting? You know, we've we've learned you don't want to stay in something bad for too long. So now maybe you're triggered at more things sooner just so that you don't fall into that trap. You mean you might leave too early? Is yes. that what you mean? Or? Yes, more or less. I guess it would be like, um, I'll do all I can do so that this can work. And um, then I'll have to let go. And that would be one of the reasons we would stay stuck because letting go is much more painful than being tied in. Uh, what is that quote by Anne uh, Na? Uh, there came a time when staying tight within the bud became more painful than the challenge it took to bloom. Yeah. Too bad we're like that. But. Okay, yeah. Uh, right here. Hi, I'm the one who was asking you the yes. OCD question. <clears throat> um, I do a lot of advocacy in the OCD world, and it's been really cool to see mindfulness become uh, an accepted practice in, in approaching how to address the obsessions and the compulsions. And what I was asking you was sort of the, the potential for overly fixating on a given trigger. Um, and I'll see if I can give you a specific example of how mindfulness has worked into the traditional OCD therapy, which is exposure response prevention. We, we learn to sit with anxiety. And it resonated with me when you were talking about sort of leaning into the trigger itself and saying, what can I learn from this? We're coached to do that. We're coached to sit with anxiety. At the same time, we're sort of cautioned not to fixate on the particulars of the trigger for losing sight of, of losing the forest for the trees, so to speak. So if I might give you a quick example. Uh, yeah. With somebody with a contamination concern might be triggered by a spot of red on a carpet. And we would be coached to, to accept the uncertainty of whether or not that red is blood, for example, and exposed to it. But at the same time, we would also be coached not to get too far into the content of debating whether or not we could logically prove that that was one thing or another. And so we're coached more to call out the fact that we are obsessing about something in particular and not get caught in the content of the trigger itself. I'm not sure I've articulated that well, but I'm wondering if there's a parallel or a concern for the non-OCD community about getting too fixated on a particular trigger. Well, being fixated on the content would be the very nature of OCD, obsessive-compulsive disorder. Obsession refers to unwanted thoughts which keep plaguing us, and we have no power to dismiss them. And compulsion is uh, forced actions and 
they become necessary rituals in order for us to manage our stress. So, hence, obsession, compulsion. So obsession in my mind, and then compulsion in my actions. And I'm deciding in favor of safety when I check carefully to see if the red thread is actually blood. But when I do that, I am reinforcing the compulsion itself. So if I can tolerate letting it be there and not having to check, in other words, not um, going into the content of it, just notice, oh, this is my uh, habit pattern that I will look for something that arouses stress and then I will do something to dissipate the st- so that the stress can be dissipated and I don't want to keep doing that. So I'm just going to expand my what Dan Siegel calls the window of tolerance and let myself endure this and let it without having to check. Checking goes with compulsion. So all of this has to do with triggers because triggers also become obsessions and compulsions. And in both instances, you're being forced into a thought or a deed that um, basically uh, takes away your freedom. See, freedom is um, creating a space between um, stimulus and response. So here's stimulus, and here's response. And if I can experience, so stimulus is the trigger. So if I can experience the trigger, and instead of going instantly to the response or reaction, If I can create a little space, what I call, or what we've heard of many times, the mindful pause, P-A-U-S-E, and this space between the stimulus and the response is the definition of freedom. Pulsion in Latin means pushed into. So when it's just stimulus response, you're pushed into a certain action or thought. But if you can create a space, if you can say, hold it, this is one of my triggers. This time, let me just pause and just let this be what it is and see if I can come up with a different kind of response than the one that I usually take refuge in. What in 
the Buddhist teaching helps me do this? What in the Dharma helps me do this? How can I turn to the Sangha fellow practitioners to help me do this? So mindful pause is the freedom. So that's how I would kind of pull it together. Did you have more to say on it? No, I think... Because you sound like you have a lot of knowledge about it. No, I think you've just beautifully articulated that. And, and I think the really cool thing about that is it's consistent with clinical practice these days, too, that we're hearing that more and more to take... They don't often call it a mindful pause, but it's essentially being coached to separate the, the compulsion from the, the obsession from the compulsion and realize that you do have a choice. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, it's recognizing. In fact, choice would be the opposite of compulsion. Because the worst thing about triggers is you just have no choice. You're just suddenly angry or sad or ashamed. And here you're... uh, Even if you can create a space of a few seconds, it has exponential power. Yeah. So um, my question is, if you're in relationship with people that you can't um, not be in relationship, um, like family, um, mm-hmm. the father of my child, um, and there's always triggers happening, right? Um, and one of you is doing your work, like I'm doing the work I can to be aware of my and taking responsibility. Um, and the other person is always getting triggered by me. Um, and so just some tools to how to be in a good way, be in a good relationship, like how to have boundaries, um, because you have to communicate, you have to co-parent, you have to coexist and, and take care of life together. So how do you, how, what are some, some guide guidelines of, you know, how to do that in in the best way when you're working on yourself and you are reflecting and that person is, it's still all all there to teach you. you Yeah. Yes. Yes, that's a good way to look at the former partner. He has now become a teacher. Everything he says is a Dharma talk. Well, I'm wondering it, it, where it, it feels toxic, but you don't really have a choice. You can't yeah. walk away. Uh, it's mainly what you first said, which is um, having very clear boundaries, no blame, and no engaging, no getting caught up in uh, trying to show that you're right. It's like... Um, Uh, You're no longer available for arguing. You're simply stating the reality as you see it. And when the other person tries to engage you, uh, you're showing that you're no longer um, present in that way. It's just much more adult and transparent 
and matter of fact. So do you make a, a request um, or do you just state that I'm not available for this style of communication and this is the style of communication that I'm available with yes. you to have? This is my new, only and new way of being present. And, and what are, I no what, longer get into it with you. And what are those? Like, what, what is the container for that besides saying, can we speak to each other without blame? Um, no, would don't you, say that. Like, <laughs> no, you're just showing that you no longer can be blamed and triggered by it. And you're no longer blaming so that the other person is triggered. Uh, it's just come to a different level where it's totally matter-of-fact. Matter-of-fact would be about the best phrase as an alternative to <clears throat> dramatic um, interactions, yeah. which are a way of denying that the relationship is really over. Like, I can still get your goat. I can still get you to react to what I bring up. We want to show that it's no longer like that. Do other people, everybody relate to this? Or? I mean, we've all had this happen one way or another. But when you show over and over again that you're no longer engaging on that level, gradually it extinguishes the other person's uh, interest in trying to trigger you. Because he sees that it no longer works. And um, in this question, and in the one before, I was aware and just want to put this in the room of the depth of pain in these concerns. It's painful to be OCD. It's a form of pain and it's a form of pain to have to interact with someone who um, uh, is has as his or her or personal plan only to um, keep arousing you so that you will react and be kind of thrown off course. We're going to be showing that uh, you can no longer do that. Or another way of saying it is, you no longer have that power over me. So we're staying on the topic of how do we handle our trigger reactions. We've talked about the first method, which is to ask ourselves, is this my shadow, my ego, or my early life that is being constellated and is now facing me as an issue to deal with? 
So we're starting with that. And then we're going to, now we're going to a, a second way of dealing with it, which is the mindful pause. Third way is what I was just saying to this woman here, which is um, we no longer um, engage because we're practicing um, moving into the matter-of-fact adult style. And you can't get a rise out of me anymore, is basically what you're saying. But the third method, which with the next method, fourth method, that I already brought up once, but is extremely important, is... um, on page uh, 53, and I'll just read this paragraph. And this is in the section called Handy Tools. Naming is a primary way of dealing with any trigger. Name without blame. Making a list of our familiar, often repeated triggers, trigger reactions, leads us to be on the lookout for them and to have a plan to deal with them. Quote, this is one of my triggers, so let me be careful not to overreact, but instead to handle it matter-of-factly. So what we're doing is catching the trigger red-handed, and we're ready to deal with it without being devastated by it. Um, we make a conscious response rather than act on reflex, which is what we've been doing all along, reflex. This escape from compulsion is our gateway to freedom. To find out Rumpelstiltskin's name is to be free of his threats. And of course, you're going to keep a journal of triggers and their reactions and uh, that keeps you on the path. And when you're noting triggers in your journal, um, we dub each trigger entry a given of life. This is my next uh, method of dealing with triggers. We say, I can expect that this might happen, as in the example you gave, I can expect that my former spouse or partner will react this way. And after saying this, we affirm, and now I have many options in how I can respond. Now we see that we don't have to fall into the habitual reaction. This is the transition from compulsion to freedom. And it's the same transition we make to free ourselves from fear. I no longer have to be afraid as I always have been. I no longer have to be bullied by fear. So those are examples. And on pages 53 to uh, 58, I have all a number of bullet entries on ways of 
working with triggers. And to go back to the question that came up about uh, post-traumatic stress, my last listing is therapy with someone who is trained in techniques to work with trauma, including somatic therapy and EMDR, is also effective and sometimes necessary. See, what we're trying to do is we're trying to say, I have... I, I certainly am at the mercy of triggers because all humans are, but now I have resources and gradually these resources intervene, interpose themselves between the trigger and the reaction. So that's what we're up to. By the way, um, I made sure to put this in here because I and I'm sure you have heard things like, uh, oh, don't take it personally. (laughs) And I say, it is human to take things personally, (laughs) especially when they're aimed at us that way. Mm. Our healthy practice is to feel our grief about the hurt. That's part one. Feel the grief. Part two, speak up and say, ouch, hey, that hurt. Stealing, S-T-E-E-L, you know, steel, iron. Stealing ourselves against vulnerability does not help us since it is a way of avoiding appropriate grief. You don't want to become so hard-nosed or hard-skinned that you no longer take things personally. Because take things personally means take things humanly, be vulnerable. We want to be like that. Otherwise, we miss out on such a tender, delicate feature of our psyche that we want to cherish, not get rid of. We don't want to become hard-nosed. We want to maintain our vulnerability, but feel the grief in it, speak up and say, ouch, and uh, see if you can open up some kind of a dialogue with the one who has turned on you. Everybody follow? Okay, let's have just a couple of questions on this. Uh, Right up here, right here. Oh, I have the... Oh, you have, Mike, okay. And then over here. Sure. Yeah. Can you hear me? Okay. I came here and signed up about four weeks ago because I realized that I was focused on outcomes and when I was focused, I shared this with you, I was focused on outcomes and then my thinking became polarized. And, mm-hmm. I, and, and I came to realize there was fear behind that. So, um, so I, I realized there's some way you've got to put that gap in there. You know, or, or, and, and I asked 10 of my friends, what do you do when you're 
locked in and your thinking's polarized and you're thinking about how can I control this? If they, if they say this, I'm going to say this. And you know, you're running the movie. Um, so uh, about six of them said, well, I do Tai Chi or I do some meditation or I, I've been doing some things and I'm volunteering more and I'm doing more service work. And when I first heard it, I was, I was like, yeah, okay. Uh, and it was right. It's about my spiritual practice that may well turn out to be the thing that gives me the freedom that you're talking about. Um, but I'm doing it a little bit in a sandbox, not so much thinking about just like generically or generally. Um, how do I build this skill up? I mean, yes, by doing with others, of course, but I wanted to really anchor some tools and some ideas, and, and I really appreciate because I just started this like four weeks ago, and, and, and it's just kismet that, that I'm here and, Good for you. and doing this. So Yeah, and uh, some of these things we're talking about now. Right. Are the tools right? And the sand, I don't. If you know what I mean by sandbox, I'm just doing it in a test, kind of a test, yeah, a small okay. sample. That's how so we that get I can started. Build my skills up. Yeah. Thank you. We all started in the sandbox. Uh, Claudine, uh, over here. Hi. Thank you. Hi. Um, I was intrigued by the part that says um, a matter-of-fact response. And I know that for me, in the moment, um, to me it sort of sounded like you meant not feel. And I know that in the moment I'm going to be feeling a lot. So are you talking about holding that and then but not expressing that response? That's a very good question. You're still feeling but you're no longer engaging with the other on the uh, on that level of argumentativeness, drama, being caught in useless discussions that don't go anywhere. You've shown that you know, all that matters is, um, like in the example that we had, yeah. all the example, all that matters now is what's the way to to be with this person so that my child has the best results possible. We're not putting the child between us and we're and I can't make the other person join into this program of disengaging, of acting matter of factly, reasonably, but I uh I can certainly do it for my part. Does this make sense to you? Or tell me if you have another question. No, I think that is, I guess the extension, I think the thing I'm asking is, are you then just holding the feelings? Or as opposed to sort of disconnecting, dissociating? Are you sort of holding those feelings but not expressing them? 
you're recognizing the level of manipulation that's coming from the other side and you have set boundaries or a shield around yourself so that it no longer penetrates. You can call me whatever you want. You can, you know, pick them up late so I'll get mad. You can do whatever you usually do to get a rise out of me. But now I am uh, self-contained and so stable in my resolve to keep this on the level of adult matter-of-factness that all those methods no longer get in. It's a big job, but (laughs) at least to think this way makes a big inroad into getting there. I want to be this way instead of I've got to let the other person know that that way is wrong or my way is right. You're done with that. Otherwise, it's not a true separation. Separation is the end of transactions such as those. Right. Now the only transactions left are the ones that have to do with whatever's left over that has to be dealt with, finance, children, whatever. And you want to keep it at that level. Or another way of saying it is, you're talking to the other now the way a lawyer would talk. The lawyer is not, it can't be moved by any of those attempts to manipulate. It's just, here it is. This is, the, this is what the court decided. This is what you have to do. It's that style. See what I mean? And it's not cold. It's not cold. Yeah. It's just um, clear. Now you're saying feelings still come up. Yes, that's... And we're still making room for those. We're still saying, okay, I still feel triggered. I'm still angry, still frustrated, but I'm not going to act on it anymore. Yeah, okay. That was really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I can't be fooled. I can no longer be fooled. Okay. That's helpful. Yeah, good. Thank you. It's a new way of being present. You're present as an adult. You're not present as an actor in the drama of our relationship. I know it's hard to do. But you can practice it. And, And as I say, just having these words around it helps us get there. You also had a... Yeah. In that realm, but a little bit different. And it's back to the feeling. So you're being adult in a familiar interaction. It's not quite the same as that. This is more in relationship. And um, you've got that space. You're reflecting because you know and you recognize the trigger, you recognize all that, and that will go to the feeling because the feeling is still there. I don't want to act on it because I recognize it, 
but I also know it's leaking out. It just happened a couple of weeks ago over a little thing, and it leaks out. I don't want to do it, but I have resentment, and I don't want it to not do it. But I don't, but I really don't want to do it. And I'm left with the feeling, and I think of other situations too, I'm left with the feeling. And as I say or explain, you know, I, to friends, my therapist, I can't move out. I have just moved into this other state. And I'm now walking in that state. With all the awareness. Mm-hmm. That'll be one of the phases of this whole long experience of transition to matter-of-factness. Like, I'll still feel it. So, I still feel it and it leaks out. will change to, I still feel it, but it doesn't leak out. will change to, I no longer feel it. Whoa. <laughs> it really works. <laughs> Otherwise, nobody would ever let go of anything. Like you're, to use your words, is uh, I feel it and it leaks out. The first is I feel it and I engage. Then as you start to work on it, it's I feel it, but it still leaks out. But I don't act on it. Then it goes to I feel it and it isn't leaking out. Then it goes to I don't feel it. Or another way of saying it is I have taken my power back. You have no power over me as you used to. I use the kind of humorous example of uh, the two guys, age 35, are in Starbucks having coffee. And they are slouching in their chairs and just enjoying the experience. In walks their fifth grade teacher. (laughs) She takes one look at them. She recognizes Jim and John. I remember them. And she says, sit up straight and fold your hands on the desk. (laughs) Same thing she said a number of years ago, which triggered them into fear. And... John immediately does it. He sits up and he puts, folds his hand on the table and he looks at Miss Smith. And Jim just laughs because he gets it. She no longer has power over us. But the other fellow thought she still did. But we all know she doesn't really have power over us after we got out of fifth grade. So it's something like that. It's like you, people still come at you and try to get you to react, but um, it's up to you as to whether you're going to go along with it. So when she says, I told you boys long ago, don't slouch. And Jim says, it no longer matters if we slouch or not. It's just, it's just a fun way of sitting. <laughs> <laughs>
Don't you get it? (laughs) That's a matter-of-fact response. Whereas the other person is scared out of his wits and he's doing what she says. So we have to ask ourselves, you know, what school marm am I still listening to? (laughs) And of course, uh, Miss Smith really meant it for your good. She was trying to help you. I get that. But uh, at a certain point, you decide how you're going to sit. Okay, so let's look at the uh, topic of anger for a minute, and then we'll come back to other questions. And I um, have my list on page 99 for those that have the book, but I'm going to give a little summary. I just want to make a distinction that um, we don't always make between anger and abuse. Because some people say that they're coming at you with anger, but actually it's not anger at all, it's abuse. So let's take a quick look, and then we're also going to notice that we too might um, react to a trigger in an abusive way. So healthy anger, and remember I gave the definition from the dictionary before, it's displeasure at an injustice, displeasure at a perceived injustice or unfairness. So it's an, uh, it's, it's an actual feeling. Whereas when it moves over into the realm of abuse, it's no longer the expression of displeasure at injustice. It's um, a theatrical comeback that is meant to intimidate you Timeo in Latin means fear. This part, D-A-T-E, means give or put. And in means in. So, intimidate. To put fear into you. That's intimidate. But a person expressing the true feeling of anger doesn't want to do that. What this person is trying to do is communicate the feeling. And do it in a way that's non-threatening, whereas in abuse, it turns into threat. In anger, the purpose is to come to a meeting of minds, whereas in abuse, the purpose is to retaliate. So sometimes we're with somebody who looks, and they look kind of alike, 
Uh, I think I have it in here. Um, let's see. Oh, here it is. Um, I'm on 99. So the first one expresses a feeling in, a, in an authentic way, and this one becomes a tantrum in a threatening way. That's abuse. Uh, but this is the part I want to point out. So the anger may be expressed with a red face, excited gestures, a raised voice, and a sharp tone. That's healthy anger. It's supposed to look like that. It's okay to be like that. That's assertive. Now, compare it to abuse. Abuse may be expressed with a red face, menacing gestures, posturing, a screaming voice, and a cutting tone. See the difference? We have to start recognizing when people come at us and trigger us in in this realm of anger, uh, what are they up to? So this one maintains goodwill at all times. This one is ill will. This is meant, abuse is meant to hurt. Anger is meant to move toward a healing. And some of us have, in all of our childhood, never even saw the real anger. So we had no model for how to do it. When you're angry, when you're angry, you see the other as a catalyst for your feeling, whereas when you're in the abusive mode, you see the other as a cause. Hence, the abuse will include blaming, whereas the anger goes to, let's look at this together. And then the anger is the shortest of all the human feelings, grief being the longest. So anger is brief. Let's go with a sense of closure, whether or not the other person gets it. It's like a flare. Abuse is held onto as a lingering resentment, hate, grudge, or bitterness, like a smoldering fire. So when we're triggered into anger, we have to ask ourselves if we're willing to do the practice of engaging in healthy anger, it will mean being careful about all the features on the list of abusive reactions and moving in the direction of uh, having my anger be more healthy. For instance, healthy anger is nonviolent, in control at all times, and always shown within safe limits, manages temper, abuse, 
is violent, out of control, derisive, hostile, punitive, loses temper. So when you're triggered into anger, you want to ask yourself, am I crossing the line and going into abuse? That's our personal question. Also, when others come at us and trigger us by their anger, we ask, is it really anger or is it abuse? Uh, you know, I know you're trying to come across as angry, but uh, in, from my perspective and from Dave's book, <laughs> it's crossed the line and it's become abuse. And I'm not sitting still for it. So when you're ready to calm down, just let me know. That's your response. When it's healthy angry, anger, rapt attention. In fact, another way to know it's healthy anger is um, you, you just can't help it. You, you're just wrapped in attention. You're focusing on the other person. You're really getting it. I've even noticed it, uh, and it's interesting, I've noticed it in movies um, like somebody's expressing healthy anger and I'm staring at the actor and I, then I can tell, oh, this person is portraying the real anger. Whereas if it's being shown like by, say, the villain of the movie, then I notice I'm kind of turning away from it. So even there, you can tell the difference. But I wanted to bring this in just so we could not have anger have a bad name. Because sometimes it wasn't even anger. It was, uh, it had crossed over and become tantrum, manipulation, theatrics, meant to scare you off not meant to bring you closer. So in real anger, um, love, it coexists with love. I think I have that in here. Yeah, and healthy anger coexists with love and maintains the connection, like you angry at your child, as opposed to abuse cancels the connection Excommunication. Healthy anger is fearless. Abuse is fear-based. Just to see it this way really helps, I think. And I have this same list, the original version in the uh, How to Be Adults in Relationships, because obviously it comes up between partners. And partners have to um, sit together and say, let's make a plan for how we're going to express our anger. Because anger is going to come up in the course of the relationship. Let's not do it with tantrums, ill will, screaming voice, retaliation. Let's do it the other way. Healthy expression of the feeling and let it go, not hold on to it as resentment. Can we make that agreement with each other? 
did your parents make such an agreement? If they didn't, then you might not have had good modeling for how it's done. And I do consider it a spiritual practice for all the feelings. Because I could do this same list for any feeling. Like, how do I get something across without hurting or intimidating someone else? It's the compassionate form of feeling. And it goes with our Buddhist practice. So questions about the anger topic. Uh, no, the woman, woman right here with the, yeah. <clears throat> so I'm trying not to go into story, but I just recently had a big um, break with my sister. Mm-hmm. And what, what I noticed when it was happening, it was on by phone, and she's, she made up something in her head that she thought happened, but it didn't. And she just escalated, the conversation just escalated uh-huh. into blame. And so I started to notice that I was, my, my energy in my body was floating out. And the best I could do was I, I didn't want to engage the family story of screaming and yelling. Good. So I, I basically said, um, I'm going to hang up now, and I'm, I'm feeling really triggered. Good and for you. And she started yelling at me, you're always triggered. <laughs> no, while she's saying that. Right. Or... That's, that's what I did. And then <laughs> and then I got a very um, nasty text that basically told me that she didn't want to ever have anything to do with me ever again. Delete. I did. Yeah. But, but no my, response. But my response was I wanted to say a couple days later, in retrospect, I just wanted to say, ouch. Like you talked. Oh, okay, yeah. I wished I had done that. Good. Thing. Don't try to get your licks in. Just right. the plain ouch. But, but, but now what I find is... My mind is still, you know, in that place. I'm grieving, but I'm also like, how do I come to some kind of peace within myself that I'm not going to engage that behavior anymore and I may never be talked to her? Well, you can decide that right this minute. Yeah, I'm not going to engage the minute it goes that way. Uh, And I would say this beforehand. um, Sometimes uh, the conversation goes in such and such a direction I want you to know that, like last time, I will be hanging up as soon as it goes that way. Because remember, nobody on earth has the power to trigger us as much as the family. (laughs) They know exactly not only which button to press, but the subtle levels of pressure... And, you know, we notice it, and we just let it go. We don't engage. Thank you. And gradually they get it that if you want to have any conversation at all, you can't do it that way anymore. She won't put up with it. The she is you. But it sounds like you handled it pretty well, and it's perfectly normal to keep kind of obsessing about it. 
when those obsessions come in, we're not trying to get rid of them because they can't be gotten rid of since we have no control over. I mean, the very nature of obsession is it's an uncontrollable thought until we try to work on it. And when we work on it, we're doing it with self-compassion and patience toward ourselves. Um, Yeah, it's going to take me a while to get over this because um, I'm that sensitive. And um, I'm going to find a way to uh, keep bringing in my loving kindness practice, which is the second Buddhist practice that we bring in to our triggering friends or family. So I'm going to place my sister in my daily loving kindness practice. May you be happy. May you uh, be uh, free of pain. May you be liberated from greed, hate, and and uh, delusion. It's, you know, you're going to place the one who triggers you into the practice. That's another one of our ways of dealing. Okay, and right behind you. Okay, right over here then, right across. Thanks. Um, This is exactly why I'm here today. Because my father had an explosive tank anger uh, like a volcano. Explosive goes on the abuse side because that's the out of control. And my mother was a narcissist, <clears throat> is a narcissist who uh, would excommunicate me. That was always the threat. So I was a really good girl. And um, I find myself in a relationship right now with someone who has no problem expressing anger. But to me, anger is absolutely terrifying. Any conflict is. And so when I look at this list, what I realize is, for me, anger triggers fear, and it's very hard for me to distinguish the difference between healthy anger and abuse because any anger feels like it's going to be abuse. And so that's where I go with my fear. So just curious. No, I uh, very much um, agree with what you're saying that some of us have been so intimidated by the amount of abuse we've had to deal with that it's given anger a bad name. And now even normal anger um, feels scary. And uh, you just have to go back to your mindful pause and wait a minute, let me... uh, distinguish this from my father's style. This person is trying to share a legitimate feeling, not trying to hurt me, and let me be open to this. Kind of an affirmation. I definitely found that as I've become more mindful and become more curious about my emotions, which is not something I ever really was before, uh, that I'm able to separate from what is happening and what's the story I'm telling myself about it and why, and then asking myself all the questions, why am I going to these fearful places? So that's helpful. Thank you.
another person right next to you? Oh. oh. Yeah. Okay, let's just have one last question on that, and then I'll go on to uh, right over here. Somebody on this side, I guess. Yeah. Um, as I'm looking at this, I'm wondering if um, in certain situations you can feel safe enough to express anger. Yeah. And in other situations, maybe this gets back to what you were talking about. We get angry. I, I get a little deer in the headlights. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you actually called it like I'm, I'm worried about the outcome. And so I'm worried about how I'm engaging. And I've lost my bearings. But I think what's so interesting about that conversation after that was around the disempowering is the answer. Just disempowering the disempowerment. And so to, like, to, to me, I don't have to worry about the outcome anymore. I'm just going to take the needle off this record, mm-hmm. and that's it. I'm, I'm yeah. done. Good. So I, That's a good metaphor. I, I liked the idea of disempowering the powerlessness that I might feel. Yeah. Done. Good. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I wanted to just share before we leave this topic, um, this, uh, these two lines from Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew on page 95. My tongue will tell the anger of my heart, or else my heart, concealing it, will break. So don't harm yourself by not showing your anger in the healthy way. In other words, being assertive. Because you are endangering yourself when you don't express it. My tongue will tell, in other words, I I have to have words for my anger. My tongue will tell the anger of my heart, or else my heart concealing it will break. And he has a quote something like this in Macbeth regarding grief. Give sorrow words, the grief that does not speak, whispers to the o'erfraught, that is destabilized, whispers to the o'erfraught heart and bids it break. Give sorrow words, the grief that does not speak, whispers to the o'erfraught heart and bids it break. So in other words, you harm yourself when you don't express these feelings, but there are ways of expressing them that... um, can be healthy. That's the point I'm trying to make. Everybody get the idea? So regarding the sadness trigger, uh, and now I'm on uh, chapter four, um, I want to connect this to the childhood issues also. So Regarding sadness, it's the feeling that comes up when you've been hurt or experienced a loss. And obviously, sadness is equivalent of grief. 
And this grief, so here's sadness as the first element of grief, the biggest part of it. It also includes some anger. You're angry that somebody hurt you. You're angry that something was taken away. And it also includes fear, which we'll go to next. So sometimes a trigger comes along having to do with something hurtful or something that represents a loss. This leads, this triggers you into an immediate grief reaction. Instead of just letting it represent itself as grief, see if you can look at three these three elements. And I let myself be sad. I let myself be angry. I let myself be afraid. I'm sad about what I have lost. I'm angry that it was taken away. I'm afraid that the big hole left in my life will never be refilled. So instead of just being triggered into grief, you allow yourself to experience the three components of the grief. And when you do this, you're no longer so triggered in the future because you have brought the experience into healthy feeling. Now, I want to apply this also to what we talked about before about early life. Let's say in your early life, you experienced hurt, loss, abuse, This is a way of working. And it's all explained in the book, but I'll just go through it now. I remember something about what one of my parents did. How one of them or both of them hurt me, took something away from me that belonged to me at the deepest level of who I am, foisted their own griefs upon me, made me carry their fears, scared me, abused me, anything like that. And you're saying, the minute this triggering memory comes up, now I'm talking about how to deal with memories that had to do with trauma. And this is what I suggest. This is you speaking. How was I sad then? And how am I sad now? How was I angry then? How am I angry now? How was I afraid then? How am I afraid now? Just doing this simple technique, it really makes a difference. 
because what you're doing again, you're bringing it to the container that nature endowed you with. Nature has endowed all of us mammals with the ability to grieve losses and hurts. We even see it in, you know, if you have two cats and one dies, you will notice that the other cat uh, kind of mopes around for a few days, doesn't want to eat as much, might hide. He's going through grief, which is built into him as his way of processing the experience and letting go and then moving on. And we can do the same. How do we do it? How was I sad then and didn't have a chance to express it? And I feel compassion for myself and all the players for how that happened. How am I sad now about things happening in my life that trigger me and remind me of what originally happened? And, And the same with anger and fear. So the technique is the placing into the feeling realm rather than just blame. Oh, weren't they mean to do that? Oh, wasn't my mother unfair to do that? Oh, wasn't my alcoholic father just one big mess? That will never help you. That won't take you anywhere. It has to go gently into the appropriate internal setting that will grad will that will gradually allow you to process the whole thing through. And someday when you have that memory, you'll notice that it appears on the screen of your mind, but it no longer triggers. It's just information. Oh yeah, he was drunk and uh, he hit me. Yeah, but no, no blip on the screen. Why? Because you brought it to where it was supposed to go supposed to go, where Mother Nature set it up. This is where we bring our griefs. Okay, any uh, questions about this part? So we're looking at the three main feelings, anger, sadness, and fear, we'll talk about fear after the break, but for now, we're on the sadness one. And this is um, the longest feeling. The reason it's the longest feeling is because it's multi-leveled. And, and since the psyche is titrating the amount of 
sadness you can allow yourself to feel without destabilizing you. It brings it in a little bit at a time. Oh, oh, wait a minute. It wasn't just that he hit me when he was drunk. It was the humiliation of being hit when I was a teenager. And he should have been more respectful at that point. He shouldn't have hit me at any age, but it was even more humiliating because I was a teenager. Or it was especially humiliating because he did it in front of one of my friends. You're going to different levels of the sadness. And uh, sadness is multi-leveled, therefore it takes a long time. Whereas anger is um, more like a flare, as I mentioned before. Any questions about this? Okay, way in the back. Oh, one here and then one over. Yeah. I understand the whole concept that you're saying. Um, What I have an issue with is letting go and letting go of the resentment. And I feel I'm in a constant state of grief in one way or the other throughout my entire life rooted in my parents. Mostly, my dad wasn't around most of my life. And when he was, he paid attention to my brother and was physically abusive. Um, I want to let go of that anger I have towards him and make peace with it so that I can have some kind of relationship now because he tries to like message me and stuff. Um, But I just can't without acknowledgement. And he won't, neither one of my parents will acknowledge the pain they've caused because they're like, well, I'm your parent, you know, I can do that or I'm your parent, get over it. Okay, the need for acknowledgement, this is a very good question <clears throat> because I think many of us could, re- could relate to it. The need for the acknowledgement is one of the phases that we all go through. And it cannot be a necessary step before we let things go. You have to get it that they do not have to acknowledge. You have to get strong enough that you no longer need their acknowledgement. I know this is hard to imagine, but believe me, you're still in their power when they have to acknowledge. That was the difference between the two types of torture. The Roman style is to torture you until you confess, and then they will execute you. That's the Roman style. In ancient times. The German style is we torture you until you confess. Then we torture you until you agree you should be executed. We will not execute until you agree. So we torture you until you agree. 
that's what we're doing to ourselves when we wait for the acknowledgement. It's like further torture. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, as I say, it's one of the phases you go through. We've all gone through it where you, you know, ask your mother or father or mother or mother or father or father, um, can you admit that you did such and such? And it does make sense. We would like them to admit it. The only thing is we have to let it go as soon as they show that they cannot do it. Their ego won't permit they're admitting they were wrong. Whatever the reason is, um, it's okay to ask. But once you see that they can't go there, you can't keep forcing it. And you can't do the silent treatment. I'm not going to talk to you until you admit it. You just have to say, okay, I'm not going to get that part. So my work will be more, uh, will take more from me since they're not going to help me get there. I mean, in the best possible world, they would say, yes, we did abuse you. We're sorry that we did it. And uh, please forgive us. But if, if that can't happen, we have to just do the whole thing ourselves. How do we do it? This way. I'm sad for how they did this. I'm angry. I'm um, afraid. And now I move toward letting it go. You don't even have to move toward letting it go. It just happens automatically when you allow the three feelings. As the feelings go, they take with them a little, a little by little amount of the resentment. Okay, let's have one last question. Oh, was somebody... Okay, oh, all the way in the back. Yeah. Hello, David. Hi. Um, this is very powerful. Uh, the ability to break down grief into its most basic components and being able to deal with each feeling that way. I was wondering, uh, can you say the same about shame? Like, does sh the experience of shame have basic feelings that we can identify and deal with separately instead of trying to deal with shame as the as shame? Mm -hmm. It would probably contain. Um this sense of um, humiliation that I mentioned, as well as feelings like these. And yes, you uh, let yourself go into the elements that uphold the feeling. So the sense of shame or feeling of shame and I'm letting myself look at what is upholding this structure of shame that I'm carrying around. Well, it has some fear in it. It has some sadness in it. It has, has some humiliation, has some sense of 
being rejected, abandoned, isolated, and you would like work with the felt sense of each of these and let yourself have the feelings. All of this is about allowing ourselves to experience the full range of our feeling. I was thinking to myself the other day, I was reading something by Joan Didion, and I said to myself, she has the full range of an English vocabulary, and I have a smaller range. So I want to expand my range, and I'll never get as far as she did, I suppose. But uh, that's how it would be. Like the, We all have a range, like your range of drawing, you know, drawing a picture, could be expanded. It doesn't have to be where it is now. It may never get as far as Picasso, but it can certainly be bigger than what you have. So it's the same with this. Like, how can I give my feelings a wider range so that I become not an amateur at sadness, but uh, more of an expert? Would I be willing to let myself go there? You want to honor your own limits. So if your answer is no, I don't want to go to the full experience of my sadness about my childhood, let's say, or about my one of my marriages, whatever it may be, um, it's okay. You're going to be patient with yourself. And if ever I get to the point of going there, I will. But for now, I think I'll just expand it this much rather than the whole way because I'm not ready yet for the whole way. Again, honoring the timing. That's why triggers, as I said before, are so difficult. They don't honor the, 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 the timing. They rub your nose right in what you've been avoiding all your life. And wisely so, because you weren't ready to deal. And they make you have to deal suddenly. And that's why they're so discombobulating. But we're finding ways to work with our triggers that really help us. So let's take a short 10-minute break, and then we will come back and wind up.
Uh, welcome back, everyone. And we had a few uh, leftover questions before we go on. Uh, let's see, first here and then here. Me? Yes, okay, yes. there we are. I just have a question about the interaction. I have a very active and um, uh, talented inner critic and um, <laughs> super ego, and I would like That's to... That's a great word, talented. <laughs> I like that. I would love for you to speak to triggers and um, the inner critic. Yeah, and I do have my... Uh, let's just check because I think I have something in here. Uh, inner critic. I have inner demons. Uh, it's, I don't really see it here. But anyway, um, you're basically wanting to convert your inner critic to Buddhism. You're just gently teaching the art of mindfulness and loving kindness. Let's see if you can uh, let's see if you can express that in a way that has loving kindness in it. I want to hear what you have to say, but uh, see if you can say it in such a way that it really helps me. Purpose of inner critic. Reduce your power. So there's something in us that's going in the direction of disempowering and the part of us that's going in the direction of empowering is not as strong until we help it be stronger. Everybody get the basic concept that um, there's a big part of us that wants to go toward disempowerment and uh, another part that goes toward empowerment but sometimes the disempowerment since it has so many other voices connected to it from our own past comes through more loudly. I give the example in here, I wouldn't be able to find it now, here in the book, of an, an episode of MASH on television. And they, in this episode, they have a wounded soldier who is trying to kill himself. And so they're all keeping their eye on him. And he's the patient of the older colonel. And, uh, and he, keeps, um, he keeps creating problems for the staff because they have to keep their eye on him. And he's trying different things. And it's just, 
he's never succeeding in actually killing himself. Anyway, in this scene, the colonel walks into the part of the operating area where they keep the, um, the, the kind of you know, old-fashioned way of putting you out, some kind of a gas, ether or something. And if you put this muzzle over your face and turn on the, the gas, you can, of course, you know, overdo it and kill yourself. So he, he, the soldier, is fumbling, trying to do that. So the colonel is so exasperated by the number of attempts that he's made, he comes over and grabs the muzzle and starts to turn on the machine. And he puts the muzzle over the soldier's face and he says, you've messed up everything, one thing after another. You can't even do this right, so I'm going to help you. And yeah, let's bring an end to your life right now. And he obviously doesn't mean it. And he puts the muzzle over his face, starts to turn it on, and the soldier jumps back and says, you're crazy. <laughs> and, but this is the important part, and very important. He, he looks at the colonel, and the colonel looks at him, a little moment of silence, and then he breaks down into intense sadness and he's crying and the colonel puts his arm around him and holds him and says okay the part of you that wants to live is stronger than the part that wants to die so I thought to myself after I mean it was very touching meaningful. But I thought to myself after being held by someone as you feel your grief helps you get through it. With some of the other feelings, you feel it on your own. But with grief, hence funerals, you know, public get together and all the mourners are together and helping each other. So the soldier being held by the colonel um, was uh, a big part of his getting through the grief. And I also thought later, I wonder if the desire for suicide has something to do with nobody there to hold you. And that the real cure of the suicide, because throughout the episode they were trying to convince him to live and didn't, you know, you've got a lot, you've got a lot to look forward to, you're young, you've got your whole life ahead of you, you know, those kind of comments didn't help him. But the hug did help combination of the feeling and the hugging uh, made a difference. So it led me to this thought that um, you're less likely to fall into the deep despair 
that leads to ending your life if you can go through something in the arms of someone. And it reminds me of a quote by um, Winnicott, famous British psychiatrist on totally other part of life, namely uh, infancy. And this is his quote. It is only in the arms of someone that the infant can risk the first I am. Isn't that beautiful? Did somebody hold us that way? Oh, in this embrace, I can finally say, I am me. That kind of uh, total acceptance of you as you are. It is only in the arms of someone that the first I am can be pronounced or rather risked. I can risk saying, I am David, I am Jane, I am Joe, when it's uh, in a human embrace. Okay, other questions about, uh, yeah. Was there someone on that side? Okay, so let's go to you first and then. Yeah. Great, thank you. I have two questions. The first is, will this book be an audio book? And then the second is just asking you to speak to how you work with dissociation. Okay, so um, all the other ones are audio, so I presume it will be, but it is a um, ebook. Uh, regarding dissociation, that refers to uh, how you cancel out the immediate stimuli that might trigger you into something you're not ready to feel yet. And our minds automatically uh, take leave of what's happening and place us somewhere that feels safe. So for instance, if as if a child is being uh, somehow abused, she or he or however uh, the gender is defined might um, just go off to think about something else. And it is helpful because you're not ready to feel what's really happening. So let's take this poem again by Emily Dickinson. And in this one, she expresses exactly what I just said. The word swoon means uh, faint or dissociate physically. There is a pain so utter, it swallows substance up, then covers the abyss with trance, so memory can step around across upon it, as one within a swoon 
goes safely, where an open eye would drop her bone by bone. So there's some painful memories and experiences that are too much for us to handle. So we're better off going into a trance state, passing out of conscious awareness. And if we didn't, we would fall apart, drop her bone by bone. So we would uh, fragment because we're just not ready to handle the full brunt of the experience. So the psyche, body-mind, is trained to create safety by getting us to dissociate. So we're just trusting that. And at the same time, as we become more adult, we're doing whatever work in therapy with a trained person for working with trauma that helps us kind of move along little by little to, as it were, titrate in the amount of reality that we can stand. Can you stand the full brunt of the reality of how deserted you felt in a certain circumstance? You would ask yourself that. And it's perfectly normal to say, no, not yet. So I don't really want to go there. And some things uh, that happened in the course of our life, we uh, should never visit because we may never be ready to face it, nor is it necessary. You can live a full-on human life without having to make sure that you resolve every unresolved experience. You can let sleeping dogs lie. Your psyche will know which ones you can handle and which ones you can't. So psyche goes for safety first. And um, we're going to let that be okay. Rather than I have to get to the bottom of everything that happens. Or I have to know everything that happens. That's not really necessary. One more question on that. Okay. Uh, wait. Oh. oh, I'm sorry. We already have somebody. Yeah. I was just wondering if you could remark on those of us who are uh, trained or habituated, conditioned, whatever word you want to use, to be pleasers and using, starting with an apology for um, sort of beginning a lot of dialogue with apologies. Did you say apology? Yeah, over-apologizing. 
we have to keep apologizing for being ourselves. Yeah, I mean, it sort of goes hand in hand with being the pleaser. And then become people pleaser. Yeah. And of course, that um, is a common experience. And now as an adult, you are scanning the set of acquaintances, friends, family members, and you're no longer willing to spend as much time with those who make you have to be something that you're not. So as we're getting stronger, as we're empowering ourselves, we are no longer being such people pleasers. Because we're no longer trying to get everyone to like us since we have done the other part of the work, which is an unconditional yes to the implacable given of all human experience. Some people will like us no matter what, and some people will dislike us no matter what. And we're just letting that be okay. that does lead us to our other topic, which is fear. And uh, obviously, it's the fear, wanting to please others, is the fear that if they don't like us, we won't survive. And that was true originally. It's just not true now. So when you're triggered into fear... What is the practice? It's very simple. We begin with, uh, they all begin with A, so this helps. So, I admit that I'm afraid. I know this looks kind of obvious, but most of us don't even go to this part. You're going to go to blame, or you're going to go to a, like a kind of a weaseling out of it word, like uh, I'm a bit worried or I'm a bit anxious, or you know, instead of I'm afraid. <laughs> so I admit that I have the feeling to myself and to someone I trust. <clears throat> This leads us to the second A, which is to allow myself to feel the feeling, to give it its full career. If it makes me shudder, if it makes me uh, uh, wake, sweat, I'm just allowing the feeling to go through like lightning through a lightning rod, and I'm letting it go back to Earth. Mother Earth, she receives all our feelings and doesn't push them back on us. Third and most important, I will act as if the fear could not drive me to do what I don't want to do or stop me from doing what I do want to do. 
two things the car does, drive and stop. So I'm acting in such a way that even though I feel the fear, it can't make me do what I don't want to do or stop me. Or another way of saying it is, I'm not acting on the fear. So when I bring a practice like this to the triggered experience of fear, I'm no longer overwhelmed by it because now I have a specific practice that will help me walk through it, which is what we're doing with all our topics. We're showing that there's that there are state-of-the-art techniques and practices that help us empower ourselves in the midst of the triggering. So I'm triggered into fear. Somehow I feel threatened, so I feel fear. And I'm going to... I could be stopped right there, or I could admit it, allow it, and act as if it couldn't stop me. That word admit in English, two meanings, admit written on a movie ticket means let you in. Admit in a court means confess. So we're doing both. We're confessing that we feel the fear and we're letting it in. We're allowing it. And when we act as if it can't stop or drive it, drive us, it no longer has the power to make us go to pieces. It thrives on its bullying power. And when it sees that it can no longer bully you, that you will admit it, you will let it in, but you won't be bullied by it. It starts to uh, loosen its grip. And we will never get rid of fear completely, but we can certainly do all we can to um, handle it this way. We don't want to try to get rid of fear because fear helps us identify threats and make a plan to deal with them. For instance, you would not want to get rid of your fear of a rattlesnake about to attack. But if you're walking along the trail, you see a rattlesnake, he's just sitting there in the sun, he's doing his little rattling, but he's... He's just looking at you as you walk by, no problem. Still feel a little fear, 
but you're allowing him to be who he is. He's allowing you to be who you are. No problem. But if he comes to attack, you want to have the fear that will activate you to flee or fight. So we do want to have the fear, but we don't want to be bullied. Everybody get the concept? And there are some people who are even afraid of closeness. Imagine connecting what I said before about the importance of being held while you go through your feelings so that you will feel safe. Imagine being afraid to be held. Now you're even a giant step away from the healing process. That's another possible option. Okay, questions about the fear dimension? Okay, we have the uh, microphone. We also have, do we have another microphone? On this side? Uh, Right here. So my question, um, I think there's a a point with fear where I get confused if it's, um, like you said, with the rattlesnake, you have the instinct of fear to protect you from Mm -hmm. getting bit. So there's certain, um, situations and I'm going to get really personal, um, I'm pregnant, I'm four and a half months pregnant. And when I got pregnant, I was very scared to, to follow through with this pregnancy um, for very reasonable things like not having, not being married, not having a certain stability I want for this child. Um, <clears throat> and so what I had to do is really ask myself <clears throat> if that fear was a, something pro- I was projecting um, onto a, a future that doesn't exist. Um, like what I experienced with my 22 year old who I was a single mom since I was very young. Um, or if it was an intuition, um, an intuition of, of knowing that this is just going to make my life so difficult. And, you know, um, and I'll share that I decided to carry through with having this child because when I laid on the mother earth and asked her to speak to me, she told me that I was projecting, um, my past onto my future and, um, that I could, I could with prayer and faith carve a path, um, that was different. Mm -hmm. So maybe I answered my own question, but I still have the, I think there can be a, just navigating through life, even staying in relationship or um, making decisions about um, stability and things like that that are coming from fear or coming from faith. And that being the, the path of, of um, I guess it comes down to connection with spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think you are answering your own question. <laughs> yeah. 
Thank you for being so candid. I think all of us in here wish you the best. Okay, we also had one on this side. Yeah. Is this on? Yeah, hi. Um, yeah, I just want to thank everyone for their sharings. It's so helpful to hear other stories. And, you know, I talked a little bit before, so my thing was growing up in a very dysfunctional family, and my father was in the abusive side, like, all the time. He, he, he didn't understand the difference between anger and, and abuse. And I didn't really realize I was being abused until way later in my life. But it was kind of too late by then. And my, I guess my question is, I a couple of things. Um, one's a question, one's a statement. But the first question is, are triggers inherited by the quote-unquote father legacy, mother legacy, whatever? Are they inherited by our parents and what they did? Or is it completely separate? Because for a while, I, I kept it felt good to be in the place of oh, well, uh, yeah, I'm getting triggered and I'm reacting, but it's okay because I, I can blame my dad for that. So I can, I can just be okay with that. But I'm, I'm not okay with that at all. But mm -hmm. I think for a while I was fooling myself that, you know, uh, I, you know I don't have to do anything because I'm just going to be messed up and there's nothing I can do and I just accept it and I'm going to blame him for it. And I think I did for a long time. And, and, and now I, I don't, want to do that. I don't believe that's healthy. Well, good. So you've made a move and uh, just sounds like the right way to go. I hope so. And yes, we do carry uh, some triggered reactions from people in our past who have, shall we say, inputted their own fears into us or their own resentments or their own grief. And uh, sometimes it's even cultural, like we come from a culture that uh, had so much uh, horrible abuse occur in history, and we're still carrying some of it within ourselves. That's just the nature of being human, that we inherit some of the pain of the past. Can I mention the one little quick statement I was going to say? It's not yeah. maybe a question, but very interesting because I felt like he, there was always this fear, you know, lingering over my head. And I, I was in fight or flight mode probably my whole life growing up. I was their marriage counselor at age six and blah, blah, blah. I'm sick of the goddamn stupid story. Sorry, but I'm sick of it. And um, didn't mean to say it. So what was your statement? Word, but I'm sorry. I'm the statement is, at one point I was in school in a class, and the teacher pulled me aside. I was in a design, a very reputable school in Pasadena, design school. And she pulled me aside. I was struggling with a project or something. I don't know. I mean, and she pulled me aside, and she goes, who put the living fear of God into you? She, she just, like, looked me right in the eye. And I was like a deer in the headlights. I was like, uh, I don't know. But I did know. I very well knew who it was, and I didn't tell her. And I held that in for so long. And it, it, I don't know, it just feels good to just get it out. And, you know, I don't want to blame him anymore, and I don't want to live in fear anymore. Good. Well, oh, excuse me. I think other people can relate to this.
So thank you for letting us know. All right, we're going to do a short exercise, uh, just 10 minutes, and uh, just be in twos and simply share your main trigger that you find it difficult to work with, five minutes for each person, and uh, see if you can help each other with how to work with your trigger. I'll ring the bell when it's 10 after.
Welcome back, everyone. Um, anybody like to share what came up in your dyad? <laughs> so we can all benefit. Uh, way in the back. For me, there's a lot of levels of triggers. There's some that are a 10 that, oh my God, I'm just over the top reaction. Mm -hmm. And then there are little tiny ones that build up that, you know, 10 threes is, is a lot as opposed to 110. I'd just like to hear what you have to say about quantification of triggers. <laughs> Well, let's just put it this way. The stronger the reaction, the richer the mining of your own work is meant to be. I mean, it's not a sign that you're so weak. It's, it's giving you information about something that is still uh, unfinished, waiting to be looked at. And also, uh, I've had the experience like of a client saying, uh, I had a very light relationship with someone, and then we broke up, and I'm having a hell of a time getting over it. And I'm wondering why I'm still so uh, caught up in the grief about the ending when this partner wasn't that important to me. And then I, you know, I would say something like, well, do you think the partner might have been important at some other level that, uh, that he or she or uh, whoever had symbolized and that that was the actual person you were in a relationship with? So it does make us ask ourselves that question. Who am I really in a relationship with? Is it this actual person? Or is it somebody that he or she or whoever would represent, symbolize, uh, been transferred onto? Because people come to us in disguise. I remember a quote in Gone with the Winds where Scarlett says, I see now that I, I dressed him up in what I wanted him to look like, but that's not, those weren't really the clothes that he chose. I thought, well, that's, that's a really good way of putting it. And we're all doing that one way or another, including to our children. Having them represent something that isn't really them. I was watching that movie, uh, Story of a Marriage. Maybe some of you have seen it. 
Anyway, in this movie, uh, Scarlett Johansson says to her husband, as when he asked the reason, why are they splitting up? <clears throat> she says, because you don't see me. <clears throat> you don't really see me. That's the answer she gave. And uh, I asked myself, well, what would it really mean to see someone? I come up with the answer. You reflect me to myself in a way that I recognize as me. You, when I look at you looking at me, I see that you are seeing a me that I myself agree is me. That's what I would call seeing someone. That would be very hard to do <clears throat> if you were so narcissistic, so caught up in yourself that you could never see beyond your own body-mind. But this was interesting. So I saw that film and I had that thought. About a week later, I was flipping the channels and I saw that same actress in another film, The Girl with the Pearl Earring, which I had seen long ago. It's about the famous Dutch painter Vermeer and how he painted a certain actual painting that we're all aware of. Uh, and he was painting Scarlett Johansson wearing a pearl earring. So when he finished the painting, she said, I would like to see it. So he said, okay. And she looked, and this is what she said. And she said it with kind of uh, perturbation. She, she felt uh, like he had gone too far. And, and this is the exact quote. She said, oh, you looked inside me. And I thought, oh, now she's giving us a different view it's the fear of being seen. So some people can't handle being seen. They're afraid of it. You looked inside me and you shouldn't have. And I guess what she meant is, I didn't give you permission to look inside. But she certainly didn't like it that he saw her exactly as she is. Whereas in the other film, she's saying, you don't see me as I am. And I thought, well, those are the two possible things that could happen in a relationship. So just this whole idea of seeing is so complicated uh, and would cause such triggered reactions between people. You can see what a complex project it is to be in an intimate relationship. And I do have a whole chapter. We didn't have time to go into it today. A whole chapter in here about 
how we trigger each other in relationships. Okay, we got another. Uh, where is the microphone? Oh, we have somebody here. And do you have a question also? Yeah, go ahead. Hi. First off, thank you so much. This has been really enlightening and informative. Um, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to the, to me, what feels like the unpredictability <laughs> of feeling fear. So what I mean by that is there's a lot of clarity in you saying sadness lasts a long time. Um, anger shoots up and back down. And what, to me, fear, I can't get a clear vision of it. It sort of just feels twinkly and sporadic, like I'm some kind of prairie dog. That's what we talked about in our group, just sort of darting in and out. So do you have any more insight into that? Did you, were you referring to fear? Yes. Yeah. That um, the fear keeps coming back and it comes in new forms and for new reasons. And our, shall we say, practice is to let that happen and gradually to recognize that fear thrives on our having no option. In other words, I'm powerless in the face of this fear. The worst is going to happen. And it's just a superstition. But the more I simply act as if the fear could not stop or drive me, the less likely is it to um, gain in power over me. Good. Did we have one more comment about? Do we have another comment about the what happened in your uh, <clears throat> dyads? Did you have a comment? Okay, hold it one sec. Um, I had a, well, it's actually, it's a, it's a question um, okay. about discerning between what I hear you describing as speaking your heart and your emo, your feelings um, and, um, uh, and actually responding to a trigger. In other words, uh, there's a little bit of a discernment there between expressing, getting that expression of whatever out and, and saying your feelings and wondering if you're now, um, what you've actually done is moved closer into uh, engaging a trigger. You mean you might trigger someone else by your feelings? Is that what you mean? Or you might actually be responding to a usual trigger. It well, it is appropriate either. to show your actual feeling. And as long as you're doing it in a, this healthy way we described, then you have nothing to be embarrassed about. Even if it's a trigger, someone's, tr you know, oh, like yes. something that is a yeah, trigger. It doesn't go by that. Okay. I mean, that is how feelings happen. They're triggered by something. 
For instance, a loss triggers sadness, threat triggers fear, injustice triggers anger, humiliation triggers shame. They're all the result of triggers. But uh, what we're doing today is we're trying to show, one, we can create a mindful pause between the trigger and the response, or we can have the immediate response in a healthy way because we have done the practices that uh, have moved us away from the adolescent style of showing sadness, anger, fear into a more adult style. And just the doing of that, just the showing the feeling in the adult way boosts our self-esteem and thereby empowers us. That's the basic concept. But, uh, you know, when we brought up the idea of the superstition, I just want to mention these um, other ones which uh, you might enjoy hearing. I'm on 162. And this is in the uh, final section of the book, which we also um, want to pay attention to, and we did throughout the day. But we have more in the chapter on our spiritual resources. That's chapter 8. And one of the sections is uh, the practice of moving from new age superstition to reality. So, we can mature into the adult style of understanding reality rather than engaging in wishful thinking and fantasy. We can find new meanings in these common superstitions of the New Age movement. So I'll start with the New Age statement, then I reframe. Everything will work out for the best. We change that too. Everything will work out as it does, and we will have the opportunity to look for the best in it. Just you hear the difference? The first one, promise, wishful thinking. The second one, I'm the one who makes it into something that helps me. Two, everything happens for a reason. We change it. Anything can happen, and we will have the inner resources to find in it a reason for hope. Third, what goes around comes around. That's straight out of, you know, retaliation, of course. Total opposite of our Buddhist practice. We change it. May what goes around come around in a way that helps us both grow. See how different you're going to feel about yourself when you say it that way? Rather than they'll get theirs. Straight out of the Godfather. 
Next. God never gives us more than we can bear. We change it. Some traumatic events can crush us, but now we have state-of-the-art ways of finding the help we need. In other words, we do have more than we can bear at times, and we need help. Next, there are no coincidences. We change that. There are ordinary condition coincidences based on randomness. And there are also meaningful coincidences in which the spiritual world breaks into our daily experience. That's mature spirituality. And finally, it all depends on me. Obviously about control. It all depends on me. We change that to grace is everywhere. In other words, some of it depends on me, courage to change the things I can, and some of it is the pure gift. Uh, Grace is the gift dimension of life. Well, this has been such a great day for me, and I hope for you, and I want to end with this uh, daily affirmation that I start the day with, and I'm still on page 163. Um, And uh, I think it kind of pulls together a lot of what we've talked about. But I do want to say that I was so especially moved by the personal feelings and personal stories that people brought up and we're never overdoing it with spending too much time on anybody's one issue. We're always finding ways to learn from what anybody says. And um, it just felt like it was possible to do that with a group like yours. So thank you for helping me get there. So this is the affirmation. I say yes to everything that happens to me today as an opportunity to give and receive love without fear or reserve. I am thankful for the enduring capacity to love that has come to me from the sacred heart of the universe. May everything that happens to me today open my heart more and more. May all that I say, think, do, or feel express loving kindness toward myself, toward those close to me, and all beings. May love be my life purpose, my bliss, my destiny, my calling, the richest grace I can receive or give. So I hope that happens for you, and thank you for your attention.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.